The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's to stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on I the same I side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are to each other. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. It's like you know what. What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be blind sheep. We're supposed to be Bereans. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. I'm really excited to have our guest this week. We got Dr. Michael Brown, and I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And welcome to Conversations. Great to be with you, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. And, and you want to start out the kind of the way that I do with everybody. The first time I have them on is I want to give you a chance to share your testimony, how God saved you, and just how that's how God's worked in your life in that way. Sure. Well, I really needed saving, although I didn't think so. Uh, I came to faith in 1971 as a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, 16-year-old Jewish hippie rock drummer. And uh, even though I was raised in a Jewish home, we weren't religious. So I was bar mitzvah at the age of 13, but it was more of a social event for me. Uh, the big event that impacted me when I was 13 was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert and playing drums and just wanting to be in the whole rock scene. So when I was offered pot at the age of 14, I thought, yeah, you know, the rock stars do it, and we're not supposed to do it, I'd, I'd like to do it. Uh, one thing led to another, and I quickly got heavily into drugs. It became part of my identity. I was known as Drug Bear and Iron Man because I could use these massive quantities of drugs, which in my foolish pride I thought was a, a positive thing. And playing in a band with my two best friends, and we thought we were going to be rock stars and all of this. And my two friends were friendly with two girls in our high school, and these two girls had a dad who was praying for them for years and an uncle who was a pastor of a church. It was a little Italian Pentecostal church. The pastor preached a lot about the second coming and the end times. The girls started going because the Lord was working in their hearts. My friends started going to hang out with the girls and God started to work in their hearts. Uh, the fact that it was Pentecostal, that was interesting to them, you know, that they believed in miracles today or speaking in tongues or people being delivered from demons, and the fact the pastor was teaching about the end times, that was interesting to them. So they'd come back and tell me all these stories, and I, I was just resisting everything, and resisting the gospel for sure. 
but when I saw their lives starting to change, I thought, okay, this is a serious threat. I better go to get them out of this church. So I went to a service in August of 71, the whole goal being to debunk what they were doing. And the people were just so loving to me. Here I am, 16, long-haired hippie, and most of them, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, very traditional, but very, very loving, gracious. And I thought, well, whatever. You have your way. I have mine. And I left determined just to never go back. But they started praying for me. I had no idea anyone was praying for me or that it would have an effect. They started praying for me, and the Holy Spirit began to convict me of my sin. The thing I was boasting about one day, I now felt miserable about the next day. And uh, I finally went back to a service in November of 71. And for the first time, I truly believed that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I I knew it was true, but I wasn't willing to change and and, and really turn to the Lord. So I, I wrestled for about six weeks. I'd be in church one day. I'd be shooting heroin the next day. And finally, December 17th of 71, I experienced the joy of the Lord in the midst of a worship service there. Maybe 50 people max, uh, the pastor's wife playing piano, and we're singing hymns. And here, you know, I was seeing Led Zeppelin in concert and Grateful Dead and The Who and all the famous bands and the volume so loud you can't hear yourself scream. And I'm a drummer myself. And here it's the pastor's wife playing these little ditty hymns. And I got so overcome with this sacred joy, I realized this is different than anything I've ever experienced. This must be what they call the joy of the Lord. And at that moment, I had a mental image of myself, filthy head to toe, and Jesus' blood washing me clean and, and putting these beautiful white robes on me. And I was going back and playing in the mud. And I said, Lord, I will never put a needle in my arm again and was free from that night on. And when, when my father saw the change in my life, He said, Michael, that's wonderful, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. You need to talk to the local rabbi. So the local rabbi befriended me and said, and we'd have these lengthy conversations. And by the time I was saved a year, I would spend at least six hours alone with the Lord, at least three hours in prayer, two hours reading the word, and one hour memorizing scripture. I used to memorize 20 verses every day. And the rabbi and I are going back and forth, and I'm firing all these verses at me. He says, look, you don't even know Hebrew. It doesn't do you any good. And So by the time I went to college, I knew after talking to many, many rabbis at that point that I really needed to learn Hebrew, that that I couldn't be relying on what a translation said or a commentary said. So that's what led me in that path, uh, the path of academic studies, uh, ultimately to a Ph.D. in Near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University. So I've stayed active in that, written biblical commentaries, uh, written a five-volume series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, debated many rabbis. So that's been kind of a, a major burden in my life. And then with that, because the Lord so wonderfully saved me, and it was part of a, what we call the Jesus People Movement, God just reaching down and saving these hippies, radicals around the world, my heart's always burned for revival in the church. So that's been a major theme, spiritual renewal in the church, uh, taking the gospel to the nations. I've been overseas, uh, well, probably about 200 times. And, and then... Uh, raising up schools that will teach and train missionaries, send them out to the nations as well. And then my heart's beat as well for a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution, that the church would live out its calling as salt and light. So our, our own ministry, we sum it up with three R's, revival in the church, revolution in society, and redemption in Israel. And that really reflects my heart and, and life calling and so much of what we've done now for these last 47 plus years. 
Yeah, definitely. I, you know, and, and I think one of the things, like, when you're talking about dealing with, like, engaging with culture and, and dealing with a lot of those kinds of issues, like, what, what is your strategy with dealing with that? Because I feel like with some people, it's full-on engaged debate, whether it's dealing with Christians or non-Christians or that sort of thing, or is it going out and just preaching the gospel? How do we or how do you engage with the culture? Yeah, there's no one cookie cutter answer for everyone. So I understand my own calling may be different than someone else's calling. And we recognize above all that we're in a spiritual battle. So with everything, prayer has to come first. Seeking the face of God for mercy on our nation, for awakening in the church. And a revival has to start with us that believers have to live differently. If we want to see the culture change, we need to change. I've said many times my greatest concern is not so much the presence of darkness, but the absence of light. And we know that our greatest tool for cultural change is the gospel in terms of uh, calling on sinners to repent, offering them new life in Jesus. Along with that, though, built on those foundations of prayer, revival in the church and preaching the gospel, we are called to shine like lights. That does mean exposing darkness. It does mean confronting what's wrong. Just like we would expect that Christians stood up against slavery in centuries past. It's, it's moral and right for Christians to stand up against abortion in our day. So we don't do this in primarily a political way. We vote and get involved like everyone else, but we don't do it primarily in a political way, but in a gospel-based way. And when it comes to the issues of, of LGBT activism, back in 2004, the Lord called me to get involved in these areas, which was a surprise for me because... Uh, a, I, I don't come from a homosexual background. B, I've never had a burden to reach out in particular to that community. And C, I don't have any training in that. It's one thing for me to be called to debate the rabbis. I mean, that's, that's a perfect fit for me. But I began to understand as early as 2004 that this was going to be the great cultural challenge for the church, that, that, that gay activism would be the principal threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience, and that everybody had to get involved. You couldn't sit this one out. And the way God laid it in my heart in early 2005, and this is the philosophy we follow, reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. Some churches and leaders will be much more called to the reach out part, to reach out to those who identify as LGBTQ and beyond. But they also need to stand for righteousness in society because these things are affecting kids. They're affecting uh, what's happening in the culture, society around us, affecting our liberties. And then others are called much more to the resist part, to, to taking a stand, to push back against the, the cultural agenda. But whatever we do, we have to do with compassion, knowing that they're hurting people for whom Jesus died, that we want to reach with the gospel. Yeah, you know, and, and I think to a certain degree, there's there almost needs to be like two different strategies, one for dealing with the LGBTQ issues that are happening inside the church, but then also dealing with stuff that's happening outside the church. How do you differentiate between how you deal with the issue based on whether somebody is claiming to be a Christian dealing with those issues or somebody who's not a Christian dealing with those issues? Yeah, so on the one hand, you have someone struggling with sin in the church or struggling with confusion in their own lives. and the other hand, you have a cultural agenda that's being actively pushed. Uh, when my generation, I'm 64, when we hear the word homosexuality, as one pastor pointed out, we think issues. When the younger generation hears the word homosexuality, they think people. And we're dealing with both people and issues. So even in the church, when I'm dealing with issues, I'm, I'm asked to come in and address these things. How do we deal with the culture? And it's been in many nations I've been asked to address these things now, even with government leaders and things like that. So it's 
This is everywhere. We have to deal with it. But when I'm speaking, even in the church, about cultural issues, I do it saying to myself, there's a 15-year-old kid in the front row who's suicidal, who thinks God hates him, who came into church to find out if there's any hope for him. I, I want to speak in such a way that he hears the love of God and the truth of the gospel. So when when someone comes, it's like any situation, Jeff. If 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 someone comes and says, "Listen, I'm struggling with porn. Uh, you know, I, I hate it. I, I despise what I'm doing. I just don't know how to get free." You you you'll you'll help that person up a hundred times. That's very different than the person that's pushing a sexual agenda on kids in schools saying, no, no, I want to teach your 10-year-old about different forms of sex, and I want to teach your 5-year-old about being genderqueer. And so there, there's one thing that's an aggressive pushing of something that's wrong, and, and still in a Christian spirit, we're not going to get mean-spirited about it, but in the Christian spirit, we're going to say, not in our schools. We're going to have a say about this, and we're going to get involved in, in what's being pushed on our kids. But when someone comes in, uh, someone's struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, we tell them, hey, you're like everybody else. Everybody's struggling with something unwanted. Every one of us to the core of our being in some way is corrupt and in need of redemption. Uh, sometimes the very core of our identity is corrupt and needing redemption. And even though there is no reputable scientific evidence that anyone is born gay, even if someone was born with same-sex attraction, the gospel answer, the soundbite is you must be born again. All of us outside of Jesus are dead in our trespasses and sins and, and, and following the spirit of this age. So in the church, we want to downplay the significance and say, hey, oh, it's all right. It's not your identity. Don't, don't put gay in front of Christian. That's not who you are. Uh, you know, the, the, the married man who struggles with lust doesn't say I'm an adulterous Christian. You know, it's no, you're, uh, I'm a believer and I've got some fleshly areas I've got to crucify and, and here I'm struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction or I'm confused about my gender. Uh, I was speaking to thousands of young people in Singapore at a major national conference, and the question came up, you know, what if your best friend says, i got to tell you something really heavy? Okay, what is it? I'm gay. I said, my response would be, I thought you were going to tell me something heavy. Said, okay, so you, know, you, you struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction. It's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. We'll get through this. That's, uh, so we need to give hope, but we also need to be very patient and recognize that, that some really believe they were born this way. It's so deep-seated within them, and all their efforts to change have failed so miserably that we need to really treat them with tremendous compassion. And many have suffered a lot of rejection along the way. I know it feels to Christians right now that we're being persecuted by this dominant gay majority, but the fact is you're still talking a small percentage of the population. Many of them have suffered a lot of rejection over the years. So in all cases, it's like I pat you on the back when I see you and you yell because you had a bad sunburn. I didn't pat you hard, but you were really sensitive. So we just have to realize there are going to be these struggles. We need extreme sensitivity and compassion. But let's not put this in a special category. This is another aspect of fallen, broken humanity, and Jesus remains the answer. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that this has kind of been an issue that I know a lot of people have been talking about, you know, like I, one of my friends, Stephen Black, who I've had on the podcast, and he deals a lot with uh, with people that are coming out of, you know, the gay lifestyle and helping them and counseling them and that sort of thing. And I had a great podcast with him kind of discussing those those sorts of things. And I don't know if you followed the whole, you know, Revoice conference. Um, oh, you bet. Oh, yeah. Well, like, yeah, Stephen, Black, Stephen Black's a colleague. And you know what I love about him is he is such a passionate holiness preacher. Yeah, he is. He is. So he brings it back to the real basics. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, I followed the Revoice conference. And unfortunately, 
because of calling and burden, I, I followed just about everything that's happened in these areas for 15 years now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, well, so you know, I th- I feel like this is one of those things where it's getting more of a more of a hold within even the evangelical church of basically saying that you can be a gay Christian and that's just the way that you are, and so how how do we with as Christians kind of deal with that situation of okay, this person's claiming to be a Christian, this is just who they are, and maybe they just abstain from any any form of acting this out is is this something that you can just abstain from the physical aspects of it or is this something where they actually have to fully repent of their entire like attraction let's say right so a a few dimensions to that question Uh, the first thing we all agree that god calls us to be holy and and in order to be holy you cannot practice sexual sin of any kind nor can you practice a, a host of other sins so holiness is all-encompassing, and, and we're all called to holiness. So the first thing I, I want this person to agree with, if they're into porn or if they're in a same-sex relationship, be it heterosexual or homosexual, okay, do you agree and understand this is sin in God's sight and that God wants us to live a holy life and will empower us to do so? So let's, let's start there. The second thing is, and this is of foundational importance, they must find their identity in being a child of God. They cannot take on the lingo and mindset of the world, which makes this a category and says this is who you are. Uh, When when we tell uh, a a gay-identified person, we love you, but we hate your sin, they hear, we hate you, because they say this is not what I do, this is who I am. So this is such a fundamental talking point in gay activism, and it's so ingrained in our society that we need to break that very, very deeply and say, no, no, this is not who you are. If you're born again, you're a child of God. You're, you, you are called to be holy and set apart to be holy. You, you, are the, you are becoming the righteousness of God and the Messiah. This is who you are. That's your identity. Spiritually speaking, you're seated with him in heavenly places. We, that's who you are. And you struggle with some earthly, fleshly things. They're very real. They're very deep. But that's not who you are. So I categorically oppose a believer putting gay in front of their description as a Christian. Some are doing it to be humble. Some are doing it to reach out, but it's really counterproductive. So, so first thing, we, we are called to holiness and we want to pursue the image of Jesus. Uh, being holy is becoming like Jesus in thought, word, and deed. That's number one. Number two, we want them to be firmly grounded in an identity in Jesus. Number three, we want them to recognize that the attractions themselves are wrong, that they're disordered, that they're not God's will. Just like as a married man, if I had the same sexual attraction for a woman I'm not married to that I do to my wife, that attraction itself is sinful. It's illicit. So in this case, they're going to recognize that they can't repent of having a feeling. They can't repent of being tempted. They can, re- they can repent if they act on it. They can repent if they affirm it or celebrate it. So I don't want them to think, oh, no. I, I found myself attracted to this guy or, you know, that walked by. I, I have to repent. it. No, if, if you said, Lord, that's not who I am. I'm not going that way. I'm not opening my heart and mind to that. Praise God. Wonderful. Now from there, let's see if we can get to the root of their same-sex attractions. And in many cases, uh, either through godly counseling or through the Holy Spirit working supernaturally in someone's life, people experience profound change. I know, I know. Ex-gays on all ends of the spectrum, 
I know those that have not seen their same-sex attractions go away, but they renounce them, they say no to them, and they're living godly lives. Some are in active ministry, and they're celibate, and they said, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy being celibate. Jesus is more than enough. I know others who've seen a significant reduction in same-sex attractions to the point that they develop opposite-sex attractions. I know of one where he's just attracted to his wife. He said, Lord, why do I have to struggle like other guys with lust? Let me just be attracted to one woman. Uh, and he is. And they work through things together. You know, as a husband and wife, they have a great marriage. And, and if he struggles a little, hey, that's not who he is. Uh, they have a great marriage. He's a good man. They move forward. I know others that either instantly or over a period of time have literally gone from homosexual to heterosexual. And they're happily married and have been so for years and years. I, I know all ends of the spectrum. But someone needs to know that if they just try to beat themselves up to become heterosexual, it, it's a council of despair. It, it's going to really frustrate them. And folks in church need to get a little bit better understanding. You know, let's say this 20-year-old guy just gets saved, attractive young man, been same-sex attracted as long as he can remember. And sister, she's 19, she's single, she's beautiful, she loves the Lord, she's vibrant, she's been waiting for the right guy. All right, we'll hook them up to cure him. You're probably going to frustrate everybody in right. the process. Uh, so the thing is, let's encourage this person to really grow as a disciple. That's the biggest thing of all. And if they can do that, other things will fall into place. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Now, I kind of want to ask you, as we're kind of going through this through this issue and deal more with like the theological, let's say like more philosophical side of things. I know that there's been several people that are, you know, prominent pastors and I don't necessarily want to like name names, but they are, they're saying like they're repenting of, of their former belief that homosexuality isn't something that you're born with. And that's starting to get a hold within certain theologians and that sort of thing. How do we, how do we deal with that? Or is that something that we do need to confront of this idea that, you're born with it, and this is just something you have to live with for the rest of your life. The first thing, even if someone was born with it, again, you must be born again. Uh, maybe we're born proud. Maybe we're born, born angry. Maybe we're born perverted. Maybe we're born uh, full of greed. Maybe we're born full of, you know, who, who knows what. Uh, whatever stain there is on, on, on the human race to whatever extent we are of our father, the devil, outside of Jesus. So, yeah, there are things in our nature. There are folks that say, look, from my earliest days, I just wanted to hurt people as long as I could remember. One pastor that counseled thousands of people said that he had confessed him every imaginable sin and sexual fetish. And in every case, the person said, this is how I've always been. So it doesn't matter. Uh, look, my, my, my uh, drug use and stuff was the outer manifestation of a sinful life. Pride was really the, the deepest thing within me that, that I had to deal with in getting saved. So everyone's fundamentally flawed, deep, deep, deep within their nature. And we believe not only in forgiveness of sin through the gospel, but the power of transformation, the possibility of transformation. Uh, is not the gospel really the power of God to save? And does not salvation include transformation? And, and in Jesus, don't we die to sin and live a new life in him? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we're perfect in this world, but the gospel comes with transformation for everyone. Why put this in a special category? So that's number one. Number two, scientists, so just on a moral, philosophical level, there are scientists who believe that they've isolated a violent gene or an obesity gene 
uh, a ruthless gene. Uh, some claim that there's an adultery gene. So even if this thing, this was true, now more and more pedophilia is understood to be something that is, is ingrained and immutable. That's what many scientists say. What does it prove? Nothing. In other words, if someone has an obesity gene, if that exists and they have an obesity gene, do we have a fat pride parade or do we work harder to deal with obesity because obesity is uh, un unhealthy? So even if you could discover a gay gene, and again, there is no reputable scientific evidence that anyone is born gay. But even if you could demonstrate it, there are other things that people are allegedly born that way. Again, like pedophilia. So everyone's going to say that's wrong. Everyone's going to every gay person I know is going to renounce that and say it's wrong or denounce it and say it's wrong. So what does it prove? In and of itself, it still proves nothing. You can't make any moral judgment based on it. But it, but it is it is an actual lie that people are born this way and can't change. And that leads to the to the third thing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he gives a list of, of those who practice different sins won't inherit the kingdom of God, including men who have sex with men. And then he says, that's what some of you were. So there are ex-gays. There are former homosexuals. Again, we don't want to put this in a special category. And, and there are even gay activists like feminist, lesbian activist Lisa Diamond, researcher, highly respected. She said, look, we better abandon this born this way can't change stuff. Because there's too much data out there saying that sexuality is fluid. And, and she said, look, the, the, the other side, us, meaning uh, they have all the information, too. They know that, too. Here's what's really illustrative. The American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association are radically liberal in, in much of their ideology and heavily, heavily under the influence of gay activism. I mean, disproportionately. And yet in their public statements, folks can go to their websites, the two different APAs, they can go to their websites and, and look up, are you born gay or is homosexuality innate and immutable? And you will find that they say, we don't know why, why people are actually homosexual or heterosexual for that matter, but there's no evidence you're actually born that way. It seems to be a number of different factors, biology and, and, and nurture and, and these other things. Even they admit it. But Jeff, to be totally candid, I'm not in the least bit surprised to see compromise entering into sectors of the church over this because they've been leaning in the wrong direction anyway. There's not a single person that has come out saying, I now favor committed monogamous same-sex relationships. Not a single Christian leader who has come out in favor of this. That has surprised me. I've been grieved over it, but none were like, no. I can't believe it because they're already leaning dangerously left already. And you lean far enough that way you're going to fall over. This is just another symptom of compromise in the evangelical church in America. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is it just brings greater separation. Let the separation come. And, and the really good news is that around the world where the church is growing, it's, it's growing in primarily conservative circles. For example, the, the big vote in the Methodist church as to whether they were going to um, vote for a compromise so that you could hold the traditional position in your church and not marry homosexuals and, and not ordain them into ministry, etc. Uh, and then others could be, quote, progressive. Uh, that failed because of the votes of African Methodists and Russian Methodists. If it had been up to American Methodists, it would have gone flying through. Mm -hmm. But where the church is growing around the world, even in America— the great majority of church growth is in conservative circles, and the churches that are bleeding the most are the more liberal ones. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, as we're kind of going along with that too, it, you know, I feel like a big movement that we've been seeing both in the political realm and within the church has been the social justice movement in general. And um, and so I think that one one of those things that we've been seeing is the church is slowly, at least within kind of the mainstream guys, slowly going more and more left and more and more progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you think is is actually leading to that? Because I know I've had a lot of conversations with people more within like the reform community and you know you know dealing with things like the gospel coalition and that sort of thing. But just in the broader sense of the church, what do you think is contributing to this progressive push? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, I, as you know, I'm not Calvinist, but I was a Calvinist from 77 to 82. And I, so, so I'm not a Calvinist basher. I have great appreciation for Calvinist leaders. And, and, I, and I can appreciate that Calvinism is going to be God-centered. You know, when John Piper was asked in an interview, on, uh, it's on YouTube, uh, about, you know, did God kill children and, you know, the the killing of the Canaanites, his answer was God can kill whoever he wants, whenever he wants. You know, most of us are going to strain to make something more acceptable to man Mm -hmm. uh, and and a Calvinist won't. So I would say that that much of the church in America has failed to be God centered. It has failed to be God conscious because of that. We want to bring a message that's acceptable to people because of that. We want to bring a message that that is, is more palatable that makes us seem more reasonable, more enlightened, and and this is the way we go. That's that's the the ugliest part. You know, I've said for years that the American gospel basically says this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God is here to please me. The biblical gospel is this is who God is, this is how He feels, and we are here to please Him. So we've really departed from the biblical gospel. A lot of our preaching. And I'm charismatic, especially in our charismatic circles, really sounds like a, a self-help message, a motivational message. And, and you know, that's the negative side of it. The, the gracious answer is that when you interact with enough people that struggle with same-sex attraction, that say, look, I tried your way and it didn't work. And now I'm in a gay affirming church and I'm thriving. You know, I love the word. I love worship. I, my, my partner and I go to the old folks home and minister to the retirement community and things like that. And, you know, and, and you know, people uh, like a James Brownson, who was an evangelical that wrote against homosexual relations and then changed his view and acknowledged a major part of it was his son coming out as gay or Luke Timothy Johnson, highly respected Catholic scholar, New Testament scholar, and said, look, let's be candid. The biblical argument is against uh, homosexual relations, but I have to acknowledge what happened with my daughter. And she was suicidal, you know, as a lesbian, that, uh, trying to change. And once she started to go to a gay affirming church with her partner, she's thriving. And so there, there's that element of human compassion. And I don't want to downplay that. But Jesus did say, if you love father or mother more than me or son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And we need to come back to that and realize ultimately we're hurting people, not helping them. There, it may be compassion, but it's a misguided compassion. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and, I th- and I think one of the things that we have to be careful with is I feel like a lot of times the conservative church is going so far the other way in having no compassion. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of – there needs to be this happy medium to a certain degree as well. Yeah, yeah. look, I, when I'm asked to minister on these things, and again, it's, it's one of many things I speak on, but for years now I've been asked to speak on it a lot. One reason being that very few pastors are willing to, 
and then some want to but don't really know how to approach it. The first, and they say, okay, what do we do? I say, first thing, pray for a baptism of tears. Pray that God will give you a heart of compassion for those who identify as LGBTQ, etc. I've spent time literally on my knees weeping before God, feeling so much pain for these people and saying, God, I don't want to hurt anybody. I, I know the stance I'm taking, they're going to perceive as hateful and bigoted and rejecting them, that I don't see their relationship as equal to the, the, the relationship I have with my wife, that I'm saying there's something fundamentally wrong with them and that, that I'm rejecting them as people. That, that hurts me to know they feel that way. Uh, but by God's grace, you know, if, if you cut us, we should bleed love. And we've received wonderful testimonies from people who found deliverance from homosexual practice because when they heard us speak, they realized there was love, there was concern. I've literally sat with people with tears streaming down my cheeks, you know, with local gay activists and just said, I just want you to know the Father's love. So it, it's painful. There is a tent. Look, look, being in this world, we should live with a certain holy tension because we really care about people. We love them and we know our message is going to sound exclusionary to them and is going to push them away on the one hand. But we know it's the only thing that can save them. But yes, if, if when I've addressed these issues in major meetings, I did a debate with a gay activist where we had about 400 present and it was pretty well split. The crowd, uh, you know, about 200 on each side. I, I, I clearly apologize for the failings of the evangelical church and the failings of heterosexuals. And, and as for forgiveness, I felt I had to I had to start there, to be honest, before God and man and then say, look, I'm not going to fail you by lying to you now. I got to tell you the truth. And this is the gospel truth. Yeah, and and I think and I think that that's that's a great way that's a great way to do it because because again it's one of those things we do need to show love but at the same time we can't compromise on what this is this is what God's word says and so I think I think that that's key. Um, now I wanted to kind of change focus a little bit and one of the other reasons why I did want to have you on too was um, and as I was telling you before we started the podcast you know I grew up in like the John MacArthur crowd where you know we're cessationist we're not charismatic. Um, I believe the first time that I really started, you know, reading some of your stuff was dealing with the whole strange fire, you know, back ah, and, back and okay. forth and that sort of thing. You know, it's one of those things where I disagreed with you on a lot of your points. But then again, a lot of the, a lot of the responses from my camp, shall we say, I thought were like overblown and just like condemning you to hell and just insanity to a certain degree. So I kind of wanted to, you know kind of talk a little bit about that but more from a rational <laughs> conversation but I wanted to, wanted to see like what if in response to things like strange fire and a lot of the people that are hardcore cessationists what what's your main response to a lot of those criticisms of like you and the charismatic movement in general yeah well let me uh, divide my answer into three parts again mm -hmm. first is fundamentally I'm quite sure that the Bible does not support cessationism. In, in other words, if I never saw anyone healed, if I never spoke in tongues, if I never received a true prophetic word, I would believe that these things refer today based on Scripture. During my Calvinist days, late 70s, early 80s, I tried to become a cessationist. I was embarrassed by my Pentecostal roots. I was embarrassed by TV preachers. Uh, this was part of my intellectual sophistication and, you know, getting my doctorate and stuff. And I thought that kind of a, you know, reform cessationist position was more intellectually satisfying. But I got 
you know, books from B.B. Warfield's Counterfeit Miracles to Robert Gromacki's Modern Tongues Movement, other books. And I read them and I just said, no, the, the biblical case is too strong. Uh, so I, I am Pentecostal charismatic because of what I see in Scripture. So my first fundamental issue is, can we look at what the Bible says and ha have a serious discussion? Even if you reject the entire charismatic movement as phony, what does the Bible say we should be experiencing and seeing today? And we can disagree. Uh, my dear friend, Dr. James White, I mean, we work side by side. We've, we've uh, debated uh, those who deny the deity of Jesus together. We debated a gay and lesbian pastor together. God willing, in November, we'll debate some Muslims together. So we stand side by side as co-workers, but have fundamental differences on, on these issues. But let's have a respectful discussion, debate about what does the Bible say about the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit operating today. It's the first thing. The second thing is, because I am Pentecostal charismatic, there will be things in my practice that I believe in that I experience that will seem odd to someone else. You know, for example, if, if, if in your church circles you're singing the hymns with a pipe organ and then you came into our circles and we're singing a song and people are literally jumping up and down and dancing, you know, and raising their hands and praising God, that would seem odd to you. Uh, but to me, that's perfectly scriptural. You know, dance before the Lord. The New Testament doesn't rescind that. Lift up holy hands. That's Old Testament, New Testament. So I'd say there are things that I practice and believe that you'd have a hard time with. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You know, when I lay hands on people, I've seen the power of God touch them. I've seen people fall on their face, fall on their back. I've seen them come up skeptical and, and leave born again, uh, repentant. Uh, but some of that you'd have a hard time with. You know, a video that in my circles we'd be loving, the critics put on, like, that's brown. You've got to run from that heretic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to have a difference there. I'll say, well, okay, let's use the Jonathan Edwards principles by which he evaluated revival and moves of God in the 1700s, and let's look at the lasting fruit and evaluate. And then the third thing is, yeah, there are all kinds of abuses and nonsense and idiotic things done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I wrote a book in 1991 called Whatever Happened to the Power of God? Is the Charismatic Church slain in the Spirit or down for the count? Pastor MacArthur actually quoted that favorably in his Strange Fire book. And then in Authentic Fire, I acknowledged issues in our movement. And then last year came out with a book called Playing with Holy Fire, a wake-up call to the Pentecostal Charismatic Church. Uh, I'm about to, to raise money to help get some of these books out in Nigeria uh, to deal with some of the rampant abuses of hyper-grace and hyper-prosperity. There is the church is growing in leaps and bounds. There's a lot of junk uh, so I, I've, I've written and addressed errors in, in the Word of Faith camp with hyper-prosperity and, and, and things like that. So there, there are serious abuses, and where Phil Johnson and I would have our fundamental difference, as it came out in his presentation at Strange Fire, that I say that there are millions of wonderfully healthy, thriving babies, and there's some dirty bathwater. He'd say the bathwater is so dirty that there are no healthy babies in it. And... I say, hey, come around the world and, and meet the folks I work with around the world, some of the highest quality human beings you'll ever find, uh, people who've sacrificed everything for the gospel, who are orthodox believers, who love Jesus, who are planting churches in hellish areas and risking their lives for the gospel and speak in tongues and believe in divine healing and, and see another part of the world. So that's right, divided. And, and if someone thinks I'm crazy for what I believe, I just say a lot of things in the Bible that are very odd. Uh, mm -hmm. The way Jesus ministered miracles he performed, the way God moved in the book of Acts. Look, no sooner is the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost 
then half the crowd hears them speaking in, in their own languages and the other half thinks they're drunk. You know, yeah. why was that? Why didn't God do it in a less controversial way? So I fully understand that if some of these critics were in a revival service with me where God was moving and I was preaching and laying hands on people, they'd have a problem with it. I'd say I can give you biblical justification for all of it, but let's look at the lasting fruit and let's examine the nature of the message that was preached. Yeah, for sure. Now, when it, when it comes to, like you were mentioning some of the abuses and, and things like that, and I know that that was a really big push from the Strange Fire crowd and that sort of thing, I know what what they would say are the are the abuses. What, what do you think are some of the abuses that, that you see within the charismatic movement that you feel like should be dealt with? Right, so we know that certain things are everywhere, like sexual immorality is, is everywhere, but we may see it even more in some of our circles because of the this don't touch the anointed type of mentality for the for the leader and that opens the door to more sin but if i want to be very specific we we have all kinds of abuses with prophecy unaccountable prophecy using prophecy to manipulate people uh, when i say unaccountable prophecy i mean words that don't come to pass and there's no accountability for it words used to manipulate uh, carnal fundraising often tied in with prophecy where, uh, you know, I, I have a word. If you give this amount right now, you're going to get this particular benefit back. And, 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 and that's used to raise all kinds of, of money. Um, an, another uh, another issue is people just getting emotional and worked up and thinking that that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, another issue is celebration of doctrinal deviance that often uh, there's not a grounding in Scripture I do understand that surveys that were done that I, I cited in Authentic Fire indicated that worldwide, those that identified as Pentecostally charismatic actually read the scriptures more regularly than non-charismatics and had a higher view of the inspiration of scripture than non-charismatics, interestingly enough. Nonetheless, because of this emphasis on just getting revelation external to the word, you have a lot of doctrinal abuse, just weird stuff that's believed that's really not checked scripturally. Uh, and, and then uh, manifestation mania. I, I absolutely know that when God moves, unusual things happen. Jonathan Edwards addressed it at, at length. And this is one of the issues I had with, with my friend Hank Hanegraaff. I mean, we've been friends. We don't see each other much, but for some years, but we're you know, quite uh, at, at loggerheads in the early years of the Brownsville revival. But I took issue with his use of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, misuse of Jonathan Edwards in one of his books because Edwards was saying, look, if you see unusual things happening, shaking, crying out, falling to the ground, whatever, his thing was you can't say that it's the Holy Spirit because of that, but you can't say it's not the Holy Spirit because of that. Rather, you have to judge by lasting fruit and, and the message preached, etc. The point being, Edwards said, it's, God did not give us in the Word a guidebook that would tell you if, if if the Holy Spirit's on someone, their pulse should be like this, or they should be crying like this. And, and he said, the scriptures are all sufficient, and we ought not to limit God where he hath not limited himself. And Edward said, it's perfectly logical that when the Holy Spirit's moving, there will be these bodily responses. His own wife would go into trances for hours at a time and things like that. Whether it was his meetings or the meetings of Wesley Whitfield, people sometimes shake violently, fall to the ground. Was it demons leaving them? Was it the Holy Spirit humbling them? Was it whatever that doesn't surprise me, but the error is when we, we major on that, when we make that the main thing, 
So the critic on the one hand says, that's not God, that's, that's of the flesh, that's of the devil. And the charismatic on the other hand puts the whole emphasis on that as opposed to we put the emphasis on Jesus, we preach holiness uh, and repentance, so we reach out to the lost with the message of repentance and to the church with the message of repentance, and we let the Holy Spirit move, then we'll stay on track. But often when God begins to move, we put the emphasis on the manifestation. And, and then uh, sometimes um, another abuse is we so want to encourage people to believe for healing that we can create an environment where someone feels second class if they're not healed or they, they feel like they're not believing hard enough and they have to believe even harder, which, which puts a terrible burden on people. Uh, so th- those, are, those are some of the most common, grievous things. Uh, I would say charismatics probably embrace the carnal prosperity message more. And there's specific abra- uh, um, abuses within word of faith. And, you know, the idea that I can just create things with, with my words and get you into a denial of reality. So these are things we've addressed for, for decades, really going back to the late 1980s. Most of the books I've written dealing with error within the church are dealing with error within the charismatic Pentecostal church, to be candid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and the interesting thing, too, is that what I've noticed from a lot of the guys like Justin Peters and Phil Johnson and, and that whole crowd, you know, is that I feel like there there's two different levels when it comes to, like, the criticism of, like, the charismatic movement and word of faith and that sort of thing. One is dealing with you know, we're cessationists, so we, we don't even believe that those spiritual gifts are still are still around. But then the other side of it is defining what those spiritual gifts are that would still be around. So, like, let's say, like, speaking in tongues. I feel like there can be, like, a difference in the view between is it, like, a spiritual prayer language or is it an actual known language here, you know, that it's just you've never been able to speak that before. Or when with dealing with healing, you're dealing with um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it's more of like a gradual thing or something that's not verified. Whereas when we see in scripture, it's something that's like a lot of times can be very drastic and it's an immediate change and that sort of thing. So when we're dealing with some of those discrepancies, um, how, how do we work that out? Because I feel like we're kind of at an impasse to a certain degree when it comes to those. Yeah. Well, first thing is do this, communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, I really sought to do that without success in, in many cases, even with private meetings with leaders with whom I had differences, because because I believe the body of Christ needs all of us. And I believe that we each can bring something. I, in Authentic Fire, it really struck me the cessationist charismatic debate is, is somewhat like a left brain, right brain contrast and and that, you know, each perspective is needed. And I've seen that some cessationists have a very high view of the gifts in other words, gift of healing is 100% healing at the will of the person with the gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, for example, prophecy is 100% accurate under all circumstances. And because they don't see that today, they say it's not the real thing. And then a charismatic would say, hey, healing is up to the Lord. He, he gives certain people and they see much more healing than others, but it's not up to them to turn it on or turn it off. And with prophecy, because everyone can potentially prophesy in the New Testament, every prophecy has to be tested and judged. And you might say, you know, we, we don't receive that as a word from the Lord, even though this person is, is normally right on. So I think sometimes we just need to understand each other better. I proposed to Justin Peters, and I haven't heard back from him. Why don't we do a public dialogue, not a debate, but a public dialogue on the issue of healing with the concern being, what about those who are not healed? And my issue would be, I really want them to know the possibility of divine healing today, because there's so many who would be dead today 
who are only alive because God healed them miraculously and their testimonies are well documented and well known. And it's above all for the glory of God and his concern would be all the people whose hopes have been dashed, all the people who were not healed, uh, who at the big healing meeting, you know, they're wheeled out and nobody says a word to them. You know, you play the happy music for, for those that are healed and you wheel out the, the 90% who aren't healed. Um, can we have a public discussion about it based on compassion, share our different views and, and perhaps do something in a pastoral way? That's the kind of thing that I think would be fruitful. Or even just to put the terms out, say, okay, this is what you understand. This is why. This is what I understand. This is why. This is why I see tongues as not just a supernatural language spoken as in Acts 2, but as something that only God understands that requires a gift of interpretation to understand as per 1 Corinthians 14. So uh, I think we have to have the discussion. And then uh, the conclusion might be the gifts are for today, but we're not seeing them. The conclusion might be we agree to disagree. But let's just do it as brothers. I, I think that if we hear one another's heart, look, I I felt that a lot of stuff at the Strange Fire Conference, parts that I saw and heard and Pastor MacArthur's book, I thought a lot of it was ter- terribly damaging, painted with way too broad a brush, demonized some, some fine people who really do love the Lord and are bearing fruit, and created tremendous division in the body on the one hand. On the other hand, I really appreciate it where the different speakers were coming from and how mortified they were by some of the abuses and how they felt it was detracting from the honor of Jesus. So I, I understand that. I understand Justin Peter's heart. Uh, I, I understand why he's so upset with especially word of faith abuses and other things. But then I, there are people I know personally, I've known them for decades, that are Orthodox believers that love Jesus, that are some of the finest soul learners on the planet and live godly lives that, that he believes are not even saved. So, you know, we have this this big gap between us that I don't know a way to bridge it other than prayer and dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and I think, too, I think a lot of times we do need to do a better job on both sides of defining our terms because I feel like a lot of times both sides are using similar terminology, but we mean something different. Like, for example, the whole, you know, tongue situation. It's like one one side believes it's it's only a known language. The other the other believes it's a prayer language that only God understands. But we're still using the same wording, and so that's where I think having a dialogue could actually help us to define terms, understand the differences, and then we can actually like kind of talk through it, which I think is important. As opposed to I I think I feel like what ends up happening a lot of times is everybody's just yelling past each other and just kind of throwing you know insult grenades at each other and then uh, slapping each other on the back basically. Um, now the the other kind of criticism that I've seen consistently when it comes to you and your ministry specifically are some of the people that like you would partner with or you know work with or endorse or promote or that or that sort of thing. Um, you know whether it's you know at people in prophecy conferences or people like Kenneth Copeland or Bill Johnson have been some of the big names that have been you know said well Michael Brown partners with them thus he's endorsing them thus uh, he's a heretic or false teacher or whatever it is. What's your response to that kind of a criticism where we're talking about not only what you believe, but now the people that you are speaking with believe? Yeah, so a, a lot of it, to be totally candid, is complete misinformation. I, I know that the conspiratorial theories among some critics feed on that, but complete misinformation. For example, I have no relationship with Kenneth Copeland. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never been in, in, in a, a meeting with him. To, to my memory, I've never been in a meeting with him. Uh, I've, I've never received a dime from his ministry. I've never been on his broadcast. I disagree with his word of faith theology. I disagree with his prosperity message. 
But according to people that I know that have known him for like 40 plus years, he's a believer. So I've gotten smashed for saying I believe he's a believer, but in error. But I have no partnership with him. I don't endorse him. I've, he's never endorsed anything I've done. I've got I've got I've had more interaction, a hundred times more interaction with Phil Johnson than than with Kenneth Copeland. Just as an example, mm-hmm. I went on Benny Hinn's TV show with the goal of reaching his audience and talking about the hyper grace issue and, and other issues. Uh, it may have been a mistake to do that. I've said it quite openly. I've made a, may, maybe it was a mistake to do it uh, because it brought too much guilt by association. I, I also did it uh, to be candid because uh, some folks that I knew told me, listen, Dr. Brown, he's misrepresented. I've heard him preach for a year now, and he preaches a clear salvation message. A lot of people misunderstand him. You should get to know him. And then I found, like, I, I played some of his clips on radio, Little Gods and things, only to find out that he had denounced that subsequently or renounced what he had said subsequently. So I said, all right, I'll go in with a clean slate and get to know the man firsthand. And then if he is in error, maybe I can help him up front. I don't mind the guilt with association if I could help behind the scenes. Well, that other part never happened. Mm-hmm. I wrote him a letter sharing some strong concerns I had. I never got a response to that. That's the end of it. So I wanted to reach his audience. It may have been a mistake, but I have no relationship with him. I don't endorse his ministry. But in the time that I spent with him and listened to him and interacted with him, as far as I can tell, he was a born-again believer, very zealous for the word and wanting to reach people with the gospel, but I believe with some some errors and then some real mistakes in, in his use of gospel money uh, in terms of lifestyle in, in the past. So you know that's why I say it's, it's misinformation. Or for example, Bill Johnson. Um, Bill and I know each other because we traveled in similar circles. I preached at Bethel one time, and I think all the critics would, would embrace the messages I preached there. In fact, they'd probably circulate them widely uh, w- without a problem. Uh, but I've, I've never even been in a meeting where I heard Bill preach. Uh, I had a meal with him once and had him on my radio show once. We travel in certain circles because I won't condemn him as a heretic and because I won't acknowledge this so-called new apostolic reformation, whatever NAR is supposed to be that's taking over the whole world. So I get brand, whatever Bethel teaches that's controversial. I'm blamed for it. It's like, talk to Bethel. I'm not their defender. I'm not their endorser. So here, here's the deal. I mean, I could go down a, a list like this. And there's some I work with closely. You know, they're dear friends I work with closely. And, and nobody that, that, that they list normally. Um, but all these others, I speak at conferences. I speak at all kinds of conferences with all kinds of speakers, with all kinds of theologies. And, and if, if I was going to be held accountable for all of that, then everybody in every part of the church would damn me for something mm-hmm. uh, to be candid. But uh, I'll say this. I'll say this last point. I, I've written. I'm not boasting, but just there's material out there. I've written 35 books. I've written thousands of articles. I've got thousands of hours of sermons, radio shows, all this. If people want to know what I believe, hold me accountable for that. If, if you find something heretical in what I actually believe and teach, then, then confront me with it. Talk to me about it, all right? And, and either you'll correct me or I'll correct your misinformation or we'll agree to disagree. And you may believe I'm a heretic. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But don't. Don't judge me, babe, that this person did this at Bethel Church. Maybe they did, and if it's true, I don't like it. But I'm not their defender. This last thing, though, I want to point out. During my Calvinist attempting to be cessationist days, I was a wholehearted Calvinist, but attempting to be a cessationist, my sister-in-law 
badly injured her, her, her I think it was her left elbow. And, and she needed surgery to repair it, and then the surgery couldn't fix it, so she was getting this insurance settlement for the thing. Anyway, she starts going to these meetings with Kenneth and Gloria Copeland. So I warned her about it. I said, stay away. You, know, you don't want to go to this meeting. And as Gloria Copeland was reading scriptures about healing, she said, Lord, this seems so real. If this is true, show me. And right then, Kenneth Copeland said, there's somebody being healed uh, you know, your left elbow shattered as being healed. She was instantly healed at that moment. She came back to our church, our Reformed church, all excited about it, wanted to testify. So we got upset with her testifying that it's always God's will to heal. We ultimately marked her for being divisive and excommunicated her. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is my own sister-in-law. She then, as, as a, uh, prayed for me fervently, and the Holy Spirit brought me back to my first love because I was really in a, in a kind of proud intellectual state. I'm, I'm not saying other Calvinists are like that. I'm not blaming Calvinism for it. I'm just saying that's what was happening with me. God used her prayers to help reignite me. So I look, I've never embraced the word of faith message. To this day, I have profound differences with different parts of it, and, and especially those that teach what is a heretical view about, about the atonement, you know, in Jesus ceasing to be God in hell and all that. I categorically reject that as heretical. But I'm just slower. To, I, I, I was so right, Jeff. I, I knew it all. And I had my arsenal of, of biblical languages and my debating skills. And, and, and I, I, could, I cut up everybody and, and found fault with everybody. So I'm going to clearly address error, but I'm going to be very slow to say that this one is a hell-bound deceiver this one is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it's not my goal to be the corrector in chief or the policeman in chief, because you have to understand every day I'm asked, condemn Calvinism as heretical, condemn this one as heretical, condemn Heidi Baker, condemn the critic that condemns Heidi Baker. You know, and it's every day someone's asking me to do that. That's not my role. Mm-hmm. When I feel burdened, I will address things in the clearest ways and whenever possible, meet with someone behind the scenes to appeal to them. Look, I'm in dialogue with Andy Stanley now about his Irresistible book. He knows I profoundly have issues with it. After I had him on the radio and then read the book, I've had more issues. But as long as he's open to private dialogue with all the great influence he has for better or worse – I want to take advantage of that and and honor the fact that he has that door open. So whether people like it or not, that's that's the deal. I don't skirt issues. You know, the the thing uh, folks call him, what's one of the nicknames? The apostle of obfuscation. (laughs) It's kind of clever. It's like, I'm not going to obfuscate. I'm going to tell you as plainly and clearly as I can. But I'm not going to play the game of proving my orthodoxy by condemning Jeff to hell because Jeff is this or condemning that one to hell because that one holds to that different view. I'm simply not going to go there. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, th- I think what, one of the things that maybe we can kind of discuss this issue is in in dealing with like speaking at conferences with people or uh, or partnering with people in ministry or that sort of thing. I believe it was in – it's in one of John's epistles where he's talking about if if you even, you know, greet – a false teacher, then you are participating in their wicked ways. So I, th- I think that that ends up being one one of the criticisms of you is like if they would take that passage to say, well, obviously, if you're speaking at their church, let's say Bethel Church, and they believe that Bethel Church is a false church with heretical beliefs and that sort of thing, that by speaking at that church, that now you are participating in their wicked ways, even though you yourself aren't doing that. So how do you respond to a passage like that? where it's that's that seems to be that this is what John's talking about. 
Right. So let's say I went to a Mormon church to speak. We'd all agree that Mormons are in that category. Unless I went there to preach the true Jesus to them and to call them to repentance, then yes, I would be guilty of partnering with them and, and adding to their deception. I don't put Bethel in that category. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked privately with Costi Hinn uh, and, and you know his book where he deals with, with these things. I know folks that have been part of Bethel for years and years, and they're Orthodox believers. I, I know some of our missionaries who've been on the field almost 20 years now, amazing people, godly people, Orthodox believers in, in, in all the fundamentals. And they were at Bethel for a period of months and were blessed by certain things, differed with others, but but took him as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So if if they hold, I mean, look, for example, Bill Johnson is criticized for teaching that Jesus was was uh, was born again a second time. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the context of what he said, he's quoting from Acts 13 that he was declared the Son of God with his resurrection. So he said that he was born as the Son of God, and he was born again as the Son of God with the resurrection. He was making a point. When I said, do you believe that he died in hell or ceased to be God? No, no, of course not. But that, that quote's taken out of context. So as far as I know, from my understanding of friends that have been at Bethel for years and my interaction with Chris Valentin, I had a few uh, meals with Chris together, and, and he spoke at, at uh, the church that I founded, uh, Fire Church, or Help Found. Um, and my understanding of what their beliefs are, looking at their doctrinal statement, they are believers, and they may have some practices that are aberrant. They may have some ideas that, are, that I disagree with, uh, but I look at them as fellow believers. Now, if that makes me a heretic and someone else's I fine. Just show me in their fundamental teaching what puts them in the false teacher category. And again, I, I don't know all the details of what they teach. I'm, I'm not their endorser. I've, I've only read little snippets of Bill Johnson's uh, writings and things like that. So if someone could show me there, there is substantive heresy in what they preach that would put them in the class of a cult, then by all means, I would, I would confront them over it. And if they refuse to repent, I would separate absolutely categorically. Right now, what I'm doing is just having private interaction over areas where I do know we have some differences and asking them to clear these up. Is this misinformation or is this accurate? I know during the Brownsville revival, probably 90 plus percent, maybe 98 percent of the criticism that came our way was based on misinformation. And, you know, let's let's get to the actual facts. Now, now Jeff, I don't say this is a challenge and I'm not an endorser of, of Bethel. Uh, but do you know of something that would be fundamentally heretical that they actually teach that would put them outside the, the camp of 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 the faith? Um, I think I think for me I think some of some of the things and again this this comes back to somewhat of our of our difference of view when it comes to things like uh, like prophecy and defining the actual spiritual gifts and that sort of thing. Whereas you know like I would be more of the belief that that a that a somebody who truly had the gift of prophecy would be a hundred percent accurate because I because be, I think that looking at the Old Testament prophets and the examples that we see. I don't remember. I can't think of a time where there it was a true prophet of God that falsely prophesied, and so I think that some of those things that they are attributing to the Holy Spirit, I would I would say shouldn't be attributed. Which I think would mm-hmm. then lead to okay, is this actually the Holy Spirit moving? Is this actually real? If that makes sense, and, and I think that that's where we kind of start getting into 
getting into the differences of views on whether it's a they're false teachers or not false teachers is because we're coming at it from like different perspectives on the Holy Spirit. Like I, I think that one of the biggest things that for me when I started questioning Bethel because I didn't really know a whole lot about them really before Strange Fire and that sort of thing. But when you had the whole glory cloud and gold coming from the sky, that just seemed like is that is that really God's presence in that place? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are, even, even on like that, that situation that happened. Yeah. So, so just on on that specifically. Okay. First, the the question you raise about the Holy Spirit and prophecy is a valid question, and and one we we really look at scripturally. When I see that everyone can potentially prophesy in the New Testament, it's very different than in the Old Testament, and all believers now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so we can all test prophecy. Whereas in the Old Testament, it was you really didn't have the ability. Believers were not all filled with the Spirit and did not have the ability to test the way we do. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, it says two or three prophets should speak, and then the others should should test or discern what's being said. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecy. Um, test everything, hold fast to that which is good. So we take that to mean, because anyone can potentially prophesy, uh, others who are full of the Spirit need to test it and say, we affirm that's really from the Lord or or we believe that you, you spoke partly in your emotion there, but we sense something the Lord's saying through it. So that to me, though, is not heaven or hell, because the Bible is the Bible. Nothing else is the Bible. Nothing else is God's authoritative word. The Bible tests us. We don't test the Bible. Mm-hmm. We're not adding revelation to it. It's just like, um, should I do this podcast with you? I prayed about it. It's like, I didn't pray about it. As soon as I saw the invitation, someone with a different viewpoint wanted to talk to me. It's like, of course, let's mm-hmm. do it. But let's say I really had a prayer about it. It has a sense, yeah, I want to do it. I didn't add to the Bible. That's, that's not doctrine or revelation. That's how we look at these other things. But what I want to see is, okay, if the Holy Spirit's allegedly moving, are people having their lives transformed? Are they getting set free from sin? Are they living holy lives? Do they have a heart to see Jesus glorified? Do they believe in the same Jesus I do? Do they hold to the authority of Scripture? That, to me, is going to be fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Jonathan Edwards said. Here's how you can really tell what's the spirit or not, but I don't have the slightest problem with a cloud of glory appearing. I mean, what, why would I, why, on what scriptural basis, if, if God appeared in the cloud in, in old Testament times, and there's even greater glory now on what scriptural basis would I reject it? Uh, I mean, look, I, I had friends of mine tell me they're praying alone in their homes. This never happened to me. All right. Mm-hmm. But godly people, they don't talk about it publicly. I, I, just ha- I just had a guy. Here, I'll give you an example. A guy who's part of a ministry that's not heavily charismatic, and he reached out to me. He said, I'm not sure what to do. In our meetings, we've been having, as we've been worshiping, this gold dust appearance covering our hands or it's coming on our Bibles and things. We don't know what to make of it. Should we talk about it publicly? I said, don't talk about it publicly. It's only going to raise questions. I said, just worship the Lord. Keep your focus on him. And if this happens and you sense this unusual divine presence and the Lord moving, then be alert to that. So, I mean, what am I going to tell these people? Is it they didn't manufacture it? It wasn't someone sticking something in a vent. Um, but why why couldn't the cloud of God's glory appear today? That that would be my in other words, why, why if that happens and someone say they're heretics to me, it's far more dangerous to damn a brother or sister to hell over in a manifestation that we don't understand than to, to be mistaken about the manifestation. 
-hmm. If they said in the cloud, said to us, Satan is God, well, now we have a problem. Or if you develop a cloud theology or a gold theology, that's why I said the manifestation mania. We put the emphasis on that. But again, honestly, I don't, I don't see what the issue is. What concerns me is doctrinal deviance. What concerns me is moral deviance. And I see plenty of that in the charismatic movement. And that's what really grieves me. Mm-hmm. But it, again, though, bottom line, I'm not a defender of Bethel. I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a defender of Benny Hinn. Uh, I'm not a defender of Kenneth Copeland. All I, all I try to do is, is make things into teachable moments and learn what we can from them. That's A. And, and B, I have to respond to what I feel the Lord wants me to address, and I'm not here to satisfy the will of, of critics, uh, some, of, some of whom do not even have the integrity to reveal who they are. They have websites attacking, blasting, damning others to hell. And it could be some 18-year-old kid in his basement. It can be some pastor who fell into sin and got excommunicated, and this is his ministry now. We have no idea who the people are. There can be no accountability there. And I've said to some of them, I'll interact with you all you want if you tell me who you are. And they won't even do that. Yeah. That concerns me as well. What I see is a lack of integrity. But, but that being said, there need to be constructive critics. There, there, there's a lot of junk in all parts of the body. We need teachers and, and leaders I appreciate the fact that John MacArthur's had a burden and, 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 and wants to be a responsible watchman and shepherd. I just disagree with some of the methodology and theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and, and, I th- and I think, too, kind of when we're kind of coming back to the, the belief that some of these things could be dangerous, I think, again, it comes back to, like, our beliefs. So, like, as cessationists, we would believe that, um, that like, pro- like that the gift of prophecy – isn't for today the gift of tongues isn't for today the gift of healing isn't for today right so then if we don't believe that it's for today then the logical next step would be if these things are happening then it wouldn't be from the holy spirit so that would be the concern with some with somebody like bethel or something like that if we don't believe that that let's say that glory cloud is actually god's presence then what actually caused that which i think would then put that into the perspective coming from the cessationist side if that makes sense yeah, so I would say, okay, let's give me scripture for this. Give me scripture that tells that you are to discern based on whether a cloud appears or doesn't appear. Mm-hmm. They judge someone's orthodoxy based on that. You know, look, if I have the presupposition that all believers are, are dark-skinned and I meet you or I look in the mirror, then I conclude, okay, then we're not believers, therefore we're heretics. To me, the conclusion is driving the agenda. So I would just say, okay, just please show me scripture because I'm a word guy. I really, everything to me is scripture, scripture, scripture. I'm a word guy. Uh, So show me in scripture where a cloud appearing today has anything to do with cessationism or not, where that's ever mentioned in the Bible, where we can draw any conclusion. Uh, Even if you're a hardcore cessationist, why couldn't a cloud of glory appear? Where does it say that that wouldn't be the case? How is that? adding to the revelation of Scripture or threatening the canon or having to do with uh, apostolic authority or anything like that. I'd, I'd ask those questions. And, and then if you could show me where the Word says it, then let's look at scriptural criterion for judging. Uh, again, if, if, if you go back to Jonathan Edwards, I've got a really neat uh, article of excerpting some of his teaching. And folks go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and type in Jonathan Edwards, 
they'll see this article where he lays out guidelines for discernment and guidelines for criticism. And the vast majority do not intersect with many of the criteria of of the critics. So just to throw this back to to you, Mm -hmm. on what scriptural basis are you associating God manifesting himself in a cloud with that can't happen because the the charismatic gifts have ceased? Where's the connection? Because I'm still not getting it. Yeah, well, I, I think I think when it comes to I think when it comes to that issue, what we're dealing with is this. Primarily, these kinds of manifestations will happen within the charismatic movement, and I think I think that the other side of it would be that when we're dealing specifically with the charismatic gifts, so you know, speaking tongues, healing, prophecy, that sort of thing. When we look at the rest of the spiritual gifts, those are things that God imparts into specific believers. So somebody somebody may have the gift of mercy, somebody somebody may have the gift of service or of teaching or whatever it is. Those spiritual gifts aren't things that we should necessarily be everybody's striving to have all the spiritual gifts. Whereas for whatever re- for whatever reason it seems like with the charismatic gifts or the you know the uh, the continuationist gifts and that sort of thing that those gifts seem to be things that are encouraged for everybody to be striving for, which I think then leads us to question, okay, why, why are these specific gifts different than the rest of the gifts that we thought yeah. God imparts to specific people for specific reasons? Well, no, we agree. In other words, we understand that God imparts specific gifts to specific people, that, that one person is used in, in gifts of healing and another person in in prophecy and another person in supernatural faith. But we do know that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul encourages everyone to seek prophecy. So, you know, that is mentioned there, and, and that's why that would often be sought. And then there's a debate uh, about tongues. Uh, it, when Paul says, do all speak in tongues, does he mean in public meetings, tongues with, with interpretation, which is the equivalent to prophecy? Or does he mean in private prayer language? Uh, you know that, and that would be the issue there. In other words, Pentecostals have historically believed that the baptism of the Spirit is an, an empowerment subsequent to salvation, which is often manifest by speaking in tongues, because when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you speak, and that's a, a first sign of it. And and others would say, no, uh, the moment you're saved, you have the fullness of the Spirit that God wants for you, and it'll be manifest in different ways. Some will speak in tongues, others won't. Those are debates between Pentecostals and Charismatics. But, uh, you know, I, I heard one guy, one evangelist, one time say that all nine gifts of the Spirit operated in him simultaneously. Of course, he was a bit of a charlatan, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But otherwise, no, I, I mean, we fully understand that one's gifted this way, another's gifted this way, another's gifted that way. Uh, the question is about prophecy. Is that something that, that more people should be able to fu- function in? But if, if you don't mind me pressing this, yeah. even if we put tongues, healings, prophecy aside, mm-hmm. uh, on what scriptural criteria are you telling me that God would not appear in a cloud of glory today? Well, I, I, that, I, that that is somehow ruled out by the Bible. Well, the thing is, is that I, I don't think that there would be a specific passage, but at the same time, there would there could also be the same argument for any possible kind of quote unquote manifestation or thing happening. I think I think part of the problem is we don't we don't see it exemplified in scripture of that happening. And then I think I think that there's also some red flags when it comes from a church like Bethel where we are seeing examples of 
and I, and I, I could send them to you. I don't have them in front of me, but examples of like false prophecies or examples of certain things when it comes to uh, word of faith teaching or you know things where it's like okay, we see, we see error over there. So why why would God be let's say honoring them with His you know physical manifestation? Ah, okay, of so that so yeah. you have a right a pattern of of logic there. And, and by yeah. the way, uh, Pastor Mike Winger sent me some stuff. Uh, you know, a, a careful critique of Bethel, you know, systematically lots of things that raise concerns. And it seemed to be fairly done. I, I didn't get to watch much of it. My assistant, Dylan, got to look at more of it. And I, mm-hmm. I appreciate Mike's spirit and things. So yeah. there are plenty of fair-minded critics that have had issues with, with Bethel. And, and where I've had issues, I've just tried to interact privately on, on them. So I understand your logic. But if you understand my point of view, number one, I see blatant clear inscription. I just don't want to get into get into a, a debate about it now, but I'll debate anybody anytime about whether it gives to the spirit of cease according to scripture. Mm-hmm. I'm a sola scriptura guy right. and I'll debate anybody over that anytime. Forget, forget what's happening today. We're not talking about any experience, just what the Bible says. So when you say you don't see a certain pattern in the Bible, it's like you don't see cessationism in the Bible for sure. Mm-hmm. From my point of view, you see an overwhelming pattern of these gifts continuing with the expectation that they'll continue until Jesus comes. That's that's the one thing. The other thing is my issue is not someone saying I don't believe that there'd be a cloud of, of glory in the midst of a church with error. I have no problem with you saying that. Mm-hmm. I understand your logic. Right. What I have a problem with is when that becomes the big thing. How can you possibly say Bethel say when they believe in this glory cloud? It's like, right. Where right. did the glory cloud become the big issue? And if I don't now condemn them to hell, I'm a heretic and a secret apostle of Nar. I mean, this is the stuff where, to be candid, I feel bad for the critics on these wild goose chases. Mm-hmm. But fair concerns about Bethel, bring them on. You know, there's this viral interview that was done with a gal that was in the school. And, and uh, was put out of the school, and it's now coming with all this information, like insider information. What concerns me is I know plenty of disgruntled people that have left plenty of churches and ministries, that have left our schools of ministry over the years, that report things now that are completely bogus, exaggerated figments of their own imagination. And and to uh, to make this the big thing now, that – that concerns me in terms of a, of a methodology. I can almost guarantee you – well, I mean I've heard from people that used to be in Pastor MacArthur's church with all kinds of horror stories. I actually had a lady on my radio show. I cut her off on the air as she was talking about the serious abuses from MacArthur's ministry that she suffered. And, I, and, and this is endemic. And I, I cut her off. I said, it's not going to happen on my broadcast. And she was attacking John MacArthur. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sorry that you feel you were hurt this way, but this is nothing you're going to broadcast on our network. I don't know her. I don't know the background. And that's not the purpose of the show. Right. So what concerns me is, is nothing that you're saying. That does not concern me at all. Your approach does not concern me. Your logic does not concern me, not at all. All right, and I'm assuming the same person I'm talking to is the same person that's going to be off the air, mm-hmm. you know, talking about this. That what yeah. I see is is what I get. Right. But I have grave concern with people who, from the sidelines, are hurling these boulders and and condemning this one, condemning that one, you know, based on a video snippet or something that seems unusual. Where here you've got someone that's been living sacrificially for the Lord and toiling to win, win poor and needy and hurting people to Jesus around the world. And some, some critic is, is you know, throwing a rocket at, at them, you know, condemning them to hell, so to say, because you know, they shake in some video or something like that. that. That concerns me. To me, that lack of biblical discernment 
that lack of walking in love, that that lack of ethical pursuing of someone is a far greater concern to me than that the person was shaking in the video. Right. Well, you know, and that's my thing is like for for me, I'm not I'm not going to say that people at Bethel are not saved because there was a glory cloud at the church. Like to me, that doesn't make logical sense. For me, I still have concerns with the church because from my theological perspective, I don't see how that how that is how that was actually God's presence, whereas they're claiming that it is. However, that that issue aside, the the fact that there was a cloud of gold dust that they're claiming is God's presence, that in and of itself isn't enough to say every single person who that who's there believes in a false gospel or whatever it is. So we do have to be intellectually honest and consistent there. Um, you know, I I remember that I think it was when you went on uh, James White's show. The one time, and I remember that it was like J.D. Hall and that whole crowd, they just went on the full-on attack during that entire show. The, the, the consistent thing that I kept seeing was that you're a heretic because you partner with X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like, okay, we, we can be critical of him for those things if we believe that that's wrong and sinful or whatever it is. But, just, but because he disagrees with you on sharing a platform or sharing the stage with somebody, that in and of him, that in and of itself doesn't mean that he necessarily believes everything. And it's like we can't we can't hold everybody to that kind of a standard. Yeah, and, and look, you know, the the situation with with JD to me is unfortunate because we were going to do a debate on on charismatic issues. Uh, and, and then uh, he had my, my email. We were going back and forth privately. And then he started blasting me publicly about some things and inaccurately at that. And I said, bro, you got my email. You come to me privately. And in your article, there are inaccuracies when he wouldn't correct them. I said, I'm, I'm not going to – I'm not going to – I will not do the debate with someone who won't even act ethically in that regard. And when I reached out to him and said, look, I appreciate your zeal. I see your heart for God. I know you care about the truth. Uh, I, I think I could help you uh, have your criticism come out in a, in a more constructive way. You know, he wrote back and said, unless you repent of your false fire, you're going to burn in the fire of hell. And, you know, I mean, all the emails are and anyone could read. In fact, he, he published some of them subsequently. To me, my issue there is the ethical issue, that if you have my contact info. And I said to Justin Peters, I, I took issue with him, including me in a tweet. Uh, whereby if Kenneth Copeland says something, he includes me. I'm not his defender. I, I have no relationship to his ministry. Zero connection whatsoever. Who, who appointed me the defender of every charismatic or Pentecost on the planet? It's like me holding, uh, you know, uh, Al Mohler responsible for every statement made by any Southern Baptist leader anywhere that it's up to him to, to make it right. But I said to Justin, you got my you got my email. Email me if you have a concern. Now you got my phone number. You reach out to me. That's my big issue. Mm -hmm. Let's treat this in an ethical way. Uh, I can't always do a podcast like this, and, and right. we've gone on actually uh, <laughs> quite quite a while, yeah, which, yeah. which is which is good though. But the fact is, <clears throat> let's deal with one another in ethical ways. And and look, when someone calls me a heretic, you have to understand that by the minute, if not by the second online, I'm blasted by somebody, be it by an atheist, be it a gay activist, be it a black Hebrew Israelite be it a cessationist, be it a, a hyper-grace person, be it a rabbi, literally by the second, and, and called every name under the sun, which for me is, is a badge of honor, you know, reproach 
for, for the gospel. Mm-hmm. But if, if you went to visit your dad, let's say he was 89 and suffering from Alzheimer's and, and you went in there and, hey, dad, and he goes, who are you? I'm, I'm your son, Jeff. I don't have a son. I've never seen you. You don't question your own identity. Mm-hmm. You feel bad for him. So I genuinely feel bad for some of these critics because I, I know God's work in my life. I know his grace. I know the folks that by his grace were able to touch and lead the Lord and help within the body. You know, by the, by the minute, we also get words of encouragement and testimony uh, from others. So I feel bad for the hypercritics because they're, they're not helping others. And, and in a sense, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And I'd, I'd love to stand side by side with them and correct error when it's there. I, I believe Pastor MacArthur, with his expository preaching method, could really help a lot of charismatics. And, and that, you know, strange fire basically backfires in that it, it galvanizes charismatics Pentecostals. The ones that need to be corrected just pointed that as, as further example of cessationist error and exaggeration. Whereas constructive criticism, boy, we need it. Because charismatics have done a poor job of policing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we absolutely need to do a better job. So let's work together. And, you know, Jeff, you have valid concerns. Let's, let's look at them. It may sharpen me. It may cause me to question something. Or I may differ. It may sharpen you. You may learn something. Yeah. But, but let's do it. And, and if there are more serious errors at Bethel, then, then let's address them. You know, or, or somewhere else, if someone has a concern with something I teach or preach, let's have honest dialogue. Yeah. And if it's within the pales of, of the faith— then we, we acknowledge one another as brothers in the Lord in the midst of our differences, like Dr. White and I do over Calvinism and Stationism and, and other things. Um, and if we really believe it, it's outside of orthodoxy, then, you know, that's between you and God to pray for that person. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, kind of kind of as we're closing, too, you know, I feel like for me, you know, I've been I've been at the recipient of, you know, attacks from the hy- hypercritical guys like J.D. Hall and Phil Johnson and all those guys, too. I mean, if you go look on Pullman Pin, there's four articles bashing me on there. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been at the receiving end of it, I, I too. Didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realize that. You know, it, it, so but, you're, not, you're not strong enough critic. Uh, appar- apparently not. Uh, but, you know, I, I, th- I think for me, it, it ultimately comes down to I used to be a part of more of that hypercritical side of things. And I used to be, you know, a hardcore supporter of Phil Johnson, a follower of them and pulpit and pen and all that kind of stuff. And then I just started realizing everybody's just yelling past each other. Like nobody's willing to engage with each other and engage with conversations and debate and whatever it is. So like, for example, like some of the things you brought up, you know, I still disagree with you, but I still want to take it back and I want to go back and reinforce what I believe or decide, okay, is this actually what God's word says and that sort of thing. And I know that, you know, you, you seem to have that same kind of perspective. I feel like that's more of how we should be instead of just writing articles, just bashing each other, taking things out of context. Yeah. Let's be ethical. Let's always be redemptive. Uh, Even when I write articles uh, about people I differ with, you know, that I believe have have become heretics or have left the faith, I'm still trying to do it in a way to win them back. Or if they're too far gone, those that they've confused, try to write in a way that can turn their hearts back, make make some appeal in the gospel. And and look, I'm far from perfect in, in the way I do it. But it's always in my head, be redemptive, be redemptive. So speak the truth, make sure you speak the truth in love. As far as I can see, you can't really speak the truth without love, and you can't really love without speaking the truth. So let's, let's model that. Let, let's, let's at the very least understand what the issues are. 
because as you said, sometimes we're just yelling past each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, my interaction with Phil Johnson uh, via email and on, the, uh, on my radio show once, I, I believe he's zealous. I, I believe he's very serious about these things. You know, he and Todd Friel on a radio show, you know, someone sent me a link to listen to and they branded me dangerous and questioned whether I was saved. Hey, I, I love these guys. I'm not mad at them in any way. But, you know, even with Todd, it's like, Todd, you got my phone number. Call me if you want. I'm happy to talk. But I don't I don't damn them to hell. I don't I, I just think, boy, we could do a better job of loving God and loving one another and learning from each other and helping one another. You know, Jeff, and I'll just say this last thing. Yeah. When when the Strange Fire conference happened and I wrote Authentic Fire and, and took issue with things, uh, one of the guys uh, in, in Pastor MacArthur's camp wrote a real uh, strong uh, attack on me and said, you know, I've used Dr. Brown's books, you know, a queer thing happened to America and other books dealing with the cultural issues and his five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I've used those, but I can no longer do so. It's like, buddy, you can think I'm a crazy guy, but the books are good books. (laughs) Use them. Don't, don't cut off your nose despite your face. That is, is what I feel is just, there's no need for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I strongly differ with pastor MacArthur on, on a number of things, but boy, was I proud of him on the Ben Shapiro show. Yeah. When he went through Isaiah 53 and, and, and presented the gospel, I thought, I even tweeted about it. I, I sent out a note here, which Phil Johnson got a kick out of, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, the same way, I think he's done a great job on so many issues and point, you know, and, and I'm with him on, on lordship uh, of Jesus, you know, and, and, and as opposed to the grace without repentance message mm-hmm. and things like that and, and appreciate how he's, you know, pointing to the cross and all. So I, I can appreciate that. And, and honor that in the midst of our differences and say, you're an elder in the body, man. The charismatic church needs you. Uh, let me be a bridge there. Uh, it hasn't happened, may not happen in this world, but we'll, we'll get some good fellowship in the world to come. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, again, thank you so much for sitting down. And I know we went for close to an hour and a half, and I, re- I, really, enjoy- I really enjoyed the conversation and kind of going through a lot of this kind of stuff. And maybe, hopefully, we'll, down the road, be able to do it again sometime. So. Yeah, I just feel terrible for you. Now, knowing what's going to come your way, that you were too soft on the heretic, and yeah. you, <laughs> you didn't ask the tough questions, and you let this guy talk over you. So I... I, I, I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's, no, it's, it's a good, healthy conversation, and, yeah. and let's keep growing together in the Lord. Well, you know, like that's my thing. It's like I, I, want, I want to hear what, what your response is to the criticisms. I don't want to just yell at you with the criticisms and not hear what you have to say. So, you know, whether we agree or whether we disagree, again, it's one of those things. I just want to at least get it out in the open, and then we can discuss and debate. So, Got it. By the way, your secret membership to NAR is on the way as requested. Okay, as long as, long as I can get the official card, I'm good. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still looking for it, but we'll get it to you. Yeah, definitely. God bless, man. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay.
This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.